All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Number 759, Ernest Miranda, Petitioner versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments in number 18, Roe against Wade. Quite often, in many of our most famous decisions, are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of 310 million different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Welcome to Landmark Cases, our series looking at 12 of the most important cases in the Supreme Court's history. We learn more about the people and the issues behind them. Tonight we're going to be talking about the case of Lochner versus New York, 1905. And it is one of the controversial cases of the Supreme Court. And in fact, uh, the story of a baker from Utica, New York, whose case gave rise to an era that defined the Supreme Court for the next 34 years. So let me introduce you to our two guests who will tell us more about this, this important case and why it's been important for the Supreme Court and our country's history. Randy Barnett is uh, at Georgetown University Law School, where he's a professor. He's the author of a book called Restoring the Lost Constitution, the Presumption of Liberty, and he has argued before the Supreme Court. Randy Barnett, thank you for being with us. Great. Paul Kenz actually wrote the book on Lochner. His book is called Lochner v. New York, Economic Regulation on Trial. His home base is Texas State University, where he teaches political science. Paul Kenz, thanks. Well, I'm telling people they should be interested in this. Why don't you explain why, both of you? Why is this case important? Well, the case has become a symbol, um, in a, a political symbol. Uh, and it was made into a political symbol, actually, by Teddy Roosevelt when he ran for president in 1912. And it was a symbol about um, how... Roosevelt claimed that the court had overreached and overstepped its bound to block progressive legislation from being enacted at the state level. And ever since then, it's been a political flashpoint uh, because it was made a political flashpoint in a presidential campaign. Political flashpoint for which side? Well, uh, Roosevelt claimed um, that this was a product of um, um, laissez-faire economics, Um, which is what he got from the dissenting opinion of Justice Holmes in the case. Uh, Roosevelt put Holmes on the court, and he was extolling Holmes as the model of what a justice should be. When he was, he put him on the court when he was president, and then he's running to be reelected president in 1912. And so he elevates Holmes, and he elevates this case, which he called, which was called the Bake Shop case. It wasn't called Lochner, it was called the Bake Shop case, uh, to a, a political importance, political salience that it really didn't have until that campaign. Um, And this was the battle between progressives who are arguing for increasing state regulation and eventually federal regulation of all kinds of economic activities and those who favored a a more free market um, uh, economic system who believed that the Constitution protected the liberties um, that the court does protect in Lochner. Paul Kenz, your book does call it one of the most controversial decisions in the history of the Supreme Court. What made it so? Well, I think it was controversial for two reasons. And one of those reasons was that, uh, just as Randy had said, that um, it had an economic element to it. It was a conflict between two different visions of what the country should be. One that kind of focused on labor, it focused on community, and it focused on democracy. 
The other, which focused primarily on capital, it focused on individual liberty and uh, individualism and liberty. Uh, so that's one reason. But as Randy also said, the second reason that went kind of a, a right alongside was a dispute about who should make the decisions about those debates. And Lochner versus New York, the Supreme Court said it should make the decisions about those debates. And specifically, what did the court decide? What was the, what the framework of what they were asked to look at in this case? Well, they were asked to look at a constitutionality of one provision of a larger statute. It was called the Bake Shop Act. The Bake Shop Act was a regulation of how bakery should be uh, uh, operated. Um, and there was one provision, Section 110 of the Bake Shop Act, that basically limited the number of hours that a person, an employee could work in the bake shop to 10 hours a day and 60 hours a week. And that was the maximum they would be allowed to work under the statute. And so the court was asked to decide whether this was a valid exercise of the state's police power um, or whether it was a violation of the liberty that's protected by the Due Process Clause, which says no person shall be denied life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And they decided that it did violate the Due Process Clause. Well, we're going to go back into the history of the time and learn more about the condition that bakers faced in this era that gave rise to the New York State Assembly passing the bake shop law. Uh, and this is a case that you say has one foot per firmly planted in the Gilded Age and another in the Progressive Era. We're going to watch this video and then have you talk more about the conditions and what was happening in the United States around this time. Let's watch. Okay. Lochner v. the State of New York was all about bakery conditions in New York at the turn of the 20th century. At that time, bakery workers worked in underground cellar bakeries, much like this one, where they had to toil for many, many hours every week producing bread to feed a vast and growing city. At that time, there were about 2,500 or even more bakeries in New York City, an incredible number. And the bakery workers would have to um, come down into these cellars and essentially spend their lives here. The ceilings of the bakery, uh, and this bakery are relatively tall, but at the time, most bakeries were maybe um, six, seven, eight feet tall. They were hot, they were humid. There were pipes which dripped sewage and, and other things onto the floor. This floor here, which you can, can see is tile, would actually have been probably made out of dirt or wood. So it would always have been soggy and dirty. Um, the utensils were never cleaned because they had no hot water at, at the, uh, the, the sink here. Um, so they would just sort of scrape the spatulas and other bread-making equipment, but nothing would ever, ever be clean or sanitized. And then here we come to the oven. This is an oven from about the turn of, of, of the uh, 20th century. And it would have originally have been a coal-fired oven, and there would have been a big pile of coal right over here, um, black coal, with a lot, which was ki always kicking up a lot of dust. So everything in the room would have been grimy with coal dust. And then the oven here would belch lots of hot fumes, also laden with coal dust. And the bakery workers were breathing this all day. And the bread would have been stored, the baked bread would have been stored somewhere around here. And the baked bread also would have been covered with a thin layer of coal dust. Um, because that was what the atmosphere of the uh, uh, cellar bakery was. And um, then you add to that the fact that there perhaps were vermin running around and cats to catch the vermin. And um, they find a nice um, row of warm loaves and they sit on them and sleep on them. Conditions in these cellar bakeries 
were not the most sanitary by any means, either for the product or for the workers themselves. So, Paul Kens, what uh, would you want people to know about what was happening in the United States at the turn of the century? Well, the turn of the century, as I said, part kind of moving from the Gilded Age to the Progressive Era, we had already, the United States had already entered into a, a kind of a mechanized uh, industry kind of business, rather moving from a farming business and one that was local, from an economy that was local and farming to one that was um, industry and in national or even international. Um, certain people benefited from that and certain people didn't. One of the things that happened is the big cities um, sprung up, like New York and Chicago are examples, in which uh, new kind of industries flourished. One in clearly in these tenement um, areas, the industries were like the clothing industry, the tobacco industry, and as it turns out, the baking industry. Um, this clip is a great clip, actually, but it's one of those kind of things that a video clip is worth a thousand words. Um, because the material that where he's standing actually looks a lot better than I imagine a bake shop would have looked, a basement bake shop would have looked in the in the uh, Lochner era, in the era of 1905. Uh, basically, they weren't just dirt floors, and they weren't sewer pipes running overhead. They were sewers in the ground that sometimes were pipes and sometimes were wood. Sometimes were open. Rats just ran freely, and so did roaches. Uh, bakers worked um, exceedingly long hours and exceedingly difficult work. It wasn't as difficult as a lot of work during that time, it's true. But when it, the title of my first chapter, by the way, is not like grandma used to bake, and I'm real proud of that, um, because it wasn't like grandma used to bake. They were ha handling 140 to 200 pound uh, sacks of flour, dumping them and shoveling them into coal shovels. It was hard work and long work. So it was dirty and filthy and difficult work for long hours. But it wasn't just that it was difficult conditions for the bakers. There was also uh, the public health was, uh, was endangered by the conditions that these people were working in because the bread wasn't very sanitary. So what was ha also happening in the country that people were beginning to look at the, the public health and public safety? Well, um, I think this is a really good time after that clip to talk about the Bake Shop Act and what the legislature of New York did to address the conditions that, you so, that were so well described uh, in the video. So the Bake Shop Act had a number of sections, sections 110 through 115, and I'm just going to read the headings of the sections, not all the details, right? Section 111, drainage and plumbing of buildings and rooms occupied by bakeries, 12. Requirements as to rooms, furniture, utensils, manufactured products. This is the one that said that the floors have to be cement or tile. Wash, number 13, washrooms and closets, sleeping places. Number 14, inspection of bakeries. It established an inspection regime to make sure the others were being taken care of. And notice of requiring alterations, you had to say what if you were going to make any changes. These are very, very detailed um, regulations. Do you know where I got this from? This is attached to the majority opinion in the Lochner decision. Because none of those sections I've just summarized were challenged as unconstitutional. And in the Lochner case itself, the court says there's absolutely nothing unconstitutional about any of these health and safety laws. They're all perfectly constitutional. So the very conditions that are being complained of in that video were being addressed by health and safety law, and the constitutionality of that health and safety law was not called into question even by the Lochner court. What was mm -hmm. called into question? One provision that got dropped into this statute separately from the process that produced the health and safety laws added by the bake shop 
unions, which was the maximum hours law I mentioned at the top of the show. It was added to the section. It didn't come about the, through the same legislative process to say that in addition to all the health and safety regulations, workers can't work more than 10 hours a day and they can't work more than 60 hours a week. Let me interject something. Um, that provision wasn't added to the section later. It was checked before. It was checked afterwards. What happened was the uh, Bake Shop Act was um, passed in its whole, 124 to nothing in the House, 30 to nothing in the Senate. And then it was, went back to the, uh, to the legislature for reasons that the governor's personal secretary found that um, they used the word person in the act rather than employee. And he was afraid that the um, act would be found unconstitutional because it applied to bake shop owners as well as bake shop employees. So they voted on it a second time specifically on that provision. And again, it was a little bit fewer people in the uh, assembly, like 120 to like 30 in the, in the House, something of that order. So we had 100 and, about 130, 135 legislatures and one governor that signed off on that, on that specific provision. Oh, that's true. That's true. But I think Paul also brings up an important point. The provision regulated the maximum hours of, of the workers, but it did not regulate the maximum hours of the bakers themselves, the owners, who also worked in those same conditions that the workers did. They were allowed to work longer than 10 hours a day and more than 60 hours a week, which is another reason why the court became suspicious of the particular, this one provision, after saying all the rest of the health and safety rules were perfectly okay. So it's time to introduce a character who will be part of our drama later on in the story as well at this early stage. His name is Henry Weissman. Who was Henry Weissman and what did he have to do with the passage of New York's bake shop law? Well, Henry Weissman is actually a really interesting character. And I don't know how this has happened to me, but usually when I'm working on research, I choose somebody that's hard to follow. He's not really famous, but he's famous enough that um, you can find little bits and pieces about him. Uh, what I did learn is that he landed in the United He's a German. He's German national. He was a baker in Germany. And he landed in California first in the United States, where in 1886 he joined the Anti-Cooley League, which was an anti-Chinese organization and sometimes violent organization. He ended up uh, being put in jail for six months um, as, uh, for possession of, uh, of um, explosives. Um, as soon as soon after he was released, he he came to New York, where he um, was hired as the editor of the Baker's Journal, which was the International Bakers and Confectioners Confectioners Unions um, uh, Journal. Question about the unions: Were they just really starting to organize themselves as workers? well in New York, especially? I mean, unions throughout the United States at this time. And remember, we're talking 1895 now. It's not in 2005. Um, which makes a lot of difference, by the way. Unions in the United States were not very well organized at this time. The first union started in the uh, earliest, you know, couple, tw two decades after the Civil War. There were unions before then, but they were usually specific, like the engineer locomotives for railroads, very specific unions. National unions didn't start to take shape until, um, until the, uh, later in the century. And what's real important is the first thing that they organized around was standardizing the workday. Workers worked from day to night. They didn't choose. Remember, one thing that people don't really understand about this case is workers were paid by the day or they were paid by the week, usually by the week and usually at the time by 19, 1895, about $12 a week. The amount of time they worked during the daytime, during that day, uh, was up to the employer. 
the, there was no bargaining about it. The employers set those hours. And um, those hours were pretty darn long. Um, in fact, in 1881, the bakers were on strike in New York, and what they were striking for was a 12-hour day. Think about that. Their improvement was going to be a 12-hour day, and they usually work six to seven days a week. So we're going to take you next to the New York State Assembly to uh, tell you more about how the Bake Shop Act was passed. Before I do that, I want to tell you how you can be part of our program. We'd very much like to have your questions for us or comments about these cases. It helps us understand what aspects of the history of this you'd like to learn more about. So if you're watching us in the Eastern or Central time zones, 202-748-8900. If you're watching us in the Mountain or Pacific time zones, 202-748-8901. Dial those numbers carefully, please. You can also send us a tweet. And if you do, to at C-SPAN, use the hashtag Landmark Cases. And you'll get into the Twitter feed that I have here on my set, and we'll mix your questions into our program. Finally, there's a conversation going on about the Lochner case in, uh, the, on our Facebook page, and you are welcome to be part of that if you'd like as well. So with all that, let's now take you to the New York State Assembly for a history lesson in how the Bake Shop Act was passed. When the Bake Shop Reform Bill was introduced in the New York Assembly on February of 1895, bakers from New York City's east side were on strike to demand shorter hours and better working conditions. We're in the Assembly Chamber of the New York State uh, Capitol Building. Uh, This is where the Bake Shop Act of 1895 uh, would have been debated and passed. It was a time when unions were just beginning to gain influence. However, most of them preferred to use striking and organizing as tactics instead of working directly with the legislature because they believed it would take less time and was less expensive. Three major factors influence the adoption of the uh, Bake Shop Act. Uh, For one, the volatile politics of New York State. Uh, The government had recently transitioned uh, from majority Democrat and a Democratic governor to a Republican governor, Levi P. Morton, um, and both houses of the legislature had Republican majorities. The uh, Republicans were, at the time, uh, interested in increasing uh, government involvement and uh, um, were very, uh, very reform-minded. The Democrats were divided. There were pro-reform Democrats, but there uh, were also uh, many still uh, that uh, represented the Tammany Hall interests. The second factor was an expose in the New York press about the terrible conditions in bake shops, conditions that were not sanitary and definitely very harmful for the workers themselves. After that expose was published in September of 1894, the legislature was besieged with petitions and pamphlets and uh, letters, many from uh, prominent citizens and many from members of the clergy, decrying the terrible conditions in baking shops and urging the legislature to do something about them. On uh, February 12, 1895, a freshman Republican assemblyman, Arthur Audette, uh, from Brooklyn, introduced the legislation. It was debated and passed uh, with a very wide margin. In fact, it was 90 to 0, uh, not all members being present. It uh, went on to the Senate and uh, was passed by an equally large margin, uh, 20 to 0. Governor Levi P. Morton signed the bill into law on May 2nd of 1895, uh, just two weeks before the end of the assembly session. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. 
We will be back in a moment. So, Paul Kenz, this is an interesting story about the, the impact of a newspaper article, muckraking press to mm-hmm. influence public opinion and therefore push the legislature into passing the legislation. Will you talk more about that? Yes. Uh, uh, you know, I never really quite answered your question about uh, Henry Wiseman, and that's important, too, uh, kind of plays in. Henry Wiseman, in 1894, when he, uh, when he came to the Baker's Union, he actually took over the Baker's Union. He didn't do it formally. He wasn't elected leader, but he basically took over Baker Jr. He apparently was a really charismatic person, fluent in both German and English, and uh, ambitious and smart. Um, 1894 was the same year, by the way, that um, there was a tenement house committee. There were several of these throughout the 1890s uh, studying the conditions of the tenement slums. And... um, as it turns out, I don't think Henry Wiseman had much to do with starting the process of this bill getting passed the Senate. I think it was a, an offshoot of the Tenement House Committee. It was called the Gilders Committee, the Gilder Committee. And one of those uh, committee members was Edward Marshall. Um, he's the man that uh, the, is mentioned in the film clip. And Edward Marshall took up the idea of the bake shops being um, one of those kinds of slum uh, businesses that they were trying to, to solve the problems of. And uh, when he put that article in the press, that he was the editor of the press, by the way, and he, when he put that article in the press, that kind of caused the attention to be drawn. But it was his allies in the, in the uh, Gilder Committee that really got behind the big shopping bill, rather than the unions. Rand Burnett, did the legislation work? Did it have an impact on the conditions that the, the bakers and the bakeries were, were uh, working in? Um, I don't know. Do you know the, well, whether they're Well, I, I didn't until you asked that question once before, so I just looked it up. Um, it, with respect to the bur- bakers themselves, it did and didn't, because by, by 1913, most bakeries in, in, um, in uh, New York were, most bakers were working 10 hours a week, roughly. And that was mostly because of collective bargaining. Um, not so many, it was the union bakers that tend to work, tended to get jobs that were 10 hours a week. With respect to health, it was a different question. Health, it was hard to tell because all we have or all I could find were the, um, uh, the records of the factory inspectors. And they just report that they, the number of inspections they make and the number of violations they find. Um, on the other hand, by 1913, the factory inspectors calling for complete prohibition of new um, tenement house bakeries. So I'm thinking maybe they didn't work. I, I think I th- want to follow up on one thing, because I was going to mention the union role, and if uh, you notice that most union, uh, union shops are already working 10 hours, so mm-hmm. the law is aimed at non-union shops. Now, why would the unions want to invest their scarce resources in passing a law that benefits people that are not members of their union? It's usually because they're trying to address competition to union-organized shops, whatever they may be. It's the same reason why, for example, they supported um, uh, maximum hours and minimum wage laws for women, because unions in those days were all white, and they were generally all male. So they, this was, we'd have to think that the unions were being unusually altruistic if they're actually supporting legislation that's going to be restricting non-union uh, bake shops. It turns out that these small ethnic German and Jewish bake shops were not very pro-union, and they were not easy to organize, and the unions didn't like them very much. So why would you restrict, how would you get a competitive advantage by restricting their maximum hours? The reason is, is because if they're small enough to man the ovens, 
you have to man the ovens pretty much around the clock. Remember the old Dunkin' Donuts commercial, it's get up time, time to bake the donuts, because it's a very long process. Well, these small mom-and-pop bake shops couldn't afford shift workers the way the larger uh, industrialized bake shops could. So if you have shift workers, you can work eight-hour shifts. But if you have just one or two employees, they're going to have to work longer hours. So it was a way for union-organized or uh, bake bakeries to suppress competition from these ethnic mom-and-pop bake shops. So on Twitter, one of our viewers asked, how much did loaves of bread cost relatively, and what, how much of that was profit? And also wants to know, were the bakers generally also the owners? That depends. I, well, first, I don't know how much bread costs at that time, and I don't know if most of it was profit. Um, and with respect to the bakers being owners, um, the answer to that is kind of complicated because there were two kinds of industries, and it also addresses the question of unions. Uh, one of the union industries was the cracker industry, which was mechanized, it was big, it tended to be unionized, it, tended, it eventually became monopolized, and it became the Bisco, by the way. The National uh, Biscuit yeah, Company yes, became uh, the Bisco, yeah. right? And um, the other was the bread baking industry, which tended to be small. It wasn't mechanized. And even in 1910, I can't remember the exact figure, but something like 98% of bakeries weren't mechanized. mechanized. Um, now, as whether they were owners or not, I think it depends a little bit on where the bakery was. If the bakery was a small bakery in a small town, probably were owners with some workers. If they were bakeries in the, in the uh, tenement houses, they were probably just workers. In a minute, we're going to meet Joseph Lochner, who gave his name to this case, and he was the owner of his bake shop in Utica, New York. But we've got a number of callers on the line, so let's hear some of their questions first. We're going to begin with a call from Patrick in Mount Kisco, New York. Hi, Patrick. You're on. Hi. Good evening. Um, I would like to ask Mr. Barnett to comment on two points. Um, as you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. wrote the dissenting opinion in Lochner, and as I'm sure you're also aware Justice Holmes is one of the most widely cited U.S. Supreme Court justices in history, principally, I believe, for his clear and present danger opinion in Schenck versus the United States. And I would like to contrast Justice Holmes with your book, The Structure of Liberty, where you emphasize the relationship between libertarianism and classical liberalism. Would you say that as you indicate in your book, the private adjudication and enforcement of law with market forces is the only legal system that can provide adequate solutions to problems of interest and power. And do you believe Justice Holmes would sign on to that theory today? Thank you. It yeah. sounds like it could be a master's thesis. So could you uh, find a short answer for that complicated well, question? The complicated question is based on a reading, and I can tell an accurate reading of my book called The Structure of Liberty, Justice, and the Rule of Law. And this is really beyond the scope of this program. But the caller has read this book. He, he has successfully applied the book uh, to this particular question. But right now, what we're really concerned about is what the U.S. Constitution provides, not what some alternative legal system I talk about in that book would provide, and whether the Constitution and the 14th Amendment in particular would either, would either be consistent with these health and safety regulations or inconsistent with them. And that's really what this program is about. Andre is in Baltimore, and you're on the air, Andre. Hi, good evening. And uh, first of all, I'd like to thank C-SPAN for putting this show on. And what I will, my question for your guest is, did the Supreme Court ruling in West Coast Hotel versus Parish overrule the court's ruling in Lochner? 
Well, it effectively overruled it because it rejected the whole idea of liberty of contract, which we haven't talked about yet. But um, and it also rejected the um, it would also kind of follow with Homestead about um, uh, the Constitution being for people of different minds. In other words, it rejected the idea. That, and this is Holmes's view that uh, the case um, actually placed laissez-faire capitalism and social Darwinism into the Constitution. Ed is in Danbury, Connecticut. Hi, Ed. What's your question? Uh, I was wondering if the law had uh, an anti-immigrant element to it. It seems as if uh, that the, the uncontested elements of the law uh, would drive undercapitalized bakeries out of business and it, uh, taking away a business opportunity uh, for immigrants that uh, you know they could use uh, what skills they had. You're nodding your head. Was there an anti-immigrant element? Well, that isn't the reason I was nodding my head. I was nodding my head because that was uh, a response to one of Randy's earlier statements, <laughs> and that is that even the even those provisions of the uh, the act that were unchallenged as being constitutional had the tendency to drive small businesses out of business. Um, I think it's a good thought that it might have had an anti-immigrant element to it. I never looked into that, so I wouldn't really know. Well, there is another book um, about the Lochner case by David Bernstein called Rehabilitating Lochner. Um, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of Paul's book, but this is another book. And David does talk about the anti-immigrant um, uh, drive, particularly anti-Germans. We're very much distrusted, and there was a lot of anti-German sentiment, and we all know the anti-Irish sentiment, but they were not in the bakery businesses, and the anti-Jewish sentiment, mm -hmm. um, because the, the Jews and the Germans were doing most of the baking in, in New York. So, yes. Um, however, having said that, um, and agreeing with the caller and with Paul about the possible uh, anti-small -bake, bake shop implications of the health and safety laws, they were still uniformly upheld because they were actually health and safety laws. And health and safety laws were consistent with the Lochner's court approach to the due process clause. Well, let's meet next one of those German bakers who uh, was affected by this law that was passed by the Assembly in New York. And that is Joseph Lochner. We're going to hear about his story from his great-grandson. Let's listen. Joe Lochner's bakery probably wasn't the target for the Bake Shop Act passed by the New York State legislation, but it was certainly impacted by it. Joseph Lochner was born in Bavaria, Germany in 1863. He came to the United States at age 24 and eventually ended up in Utica, New York and opened up a bakery. They made cakes and cookies and breads and things like that. I have a cousin who talked about how their uncle Joe, Joe Lochner was their uncle, would come to their house every Sunday and he'd bring all kinds of sweets and they talked about how delicious they were. I know later on in life, uh, the bakery was really thriving, and Joe eventually bought up an entire city block in Utica and had the first car in the city as well. In some of the old family documents, we came across a contract from 1896 that was a co-partnership agreement between my great-grandfather, Joseph Lochner, and uh, Mr. Schmitter. The contract gives 98% of the partnership to Joseph Lochner and the remaining 2% to Schmitter. And what it does is, I think, is it's a way to try to get around the Bake Shop Act. After Joe had been arrested and he took the case to court, every baker in America donated a dollar to the Legal Defense Fund. My mother had always told me that growing up. I think it was a test case. Um, and the reason I think that Joe would make a sympathetic kind of defendant is, you know, he was a 
a hardworking immigrant from Germany. His bakery was on the first floor, not in the basement, um, like a lot of other bakeries of that time period. It was also very clean. Um, that's what I was always told going, growing up as well, um, which may not have been typical for bakeries of that time period. So, Randy Barnett, you want to start with reaction? Yeah, I want to talk about the Germans a little bit because there was a lot of anti-German sentiment. It also led to another very famous Supreme Court case you're probably not including in your series called Meyer v. Nebraska. Meyer v. Nebraska was a case which, which, in which a, statute, a local statute prohibited the teaching of German in grade schools. That's how anti-German the sentiment was, at least in Nebraska. The very same Lochner court that said that this maximum hours law did not satisfy the due process clause also said this restriction on the teaching of German also failed and was unconstitutional under the due process clause, uh, in part because it deprived the people that did German instruction of their livelihood in teaching that, and also because it just lacked a police power rationale the way the maximum hours law did. And the Meyer v. Nebraska case, which comes out of the Lochner era, uh, is considered good law today. It's not a case that's part of the bad cases, and yet it was still decided by the same Lochner court, um, or the similar Lochner court, on the very same basis that Lochner v. New York itself was decided, and it also enjoy, uh, 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 involved anti-German sentiment. Uh, you got to love our viewers. One of them tweeted and looked up online, uh, retail prices of foodstuffs circa 1900, a pound a loaf of bread in 1915 cost seven cents. Hard to know how much of a, of a family's income that seven cents was. Okay, so what do you want to tell us about how Joseph Lochner, Joe Lochner, found himself at the center of this legal action? Was was this his idea to pursue this legally? Was it was it uh, unusual that he would have gotten arrested for his violation? No, it wasn't. Well, it wasn't only unusual because the factory inspector, the state factory inspector, only had three inspectors. As a matter of fact, they even got. Henry Wiseman into the act because they uh, got him to do some of the inspecting um, uh, right after the bill was passed. So for the entire state of New York, including all yeah, those bakeries in New York City. Yeah, and they focused inspectors. on New York City. So that might be another reason um, that uh, this would have been unusual. Um, you know, I don't know. I wish I would have looked into uh, Joseph Lochner a little bit more when I did the book. But one thing I did say about him was that he was probably surprised to find himself in court with criminals um, on the day that he was indicted for the, or that he was charged with this law. Um, I think he probably was a hard-headed man. I don't think this was a setup case. I think it was a lamb. I think it was a, uh, a test case, as, he, as his great as his grandson says. But I don't think it was set up. You know, there was another case earlier called N. Ray Jacobs, and that case involved a tobacco. Uh, manufacturing, which was done in the slums, usually in some in the home of people living in the tenement houses. Uh, they cigars, usually, cigar. Cig oh yes, in the yes, yeah, cigars. They were making cigar making. Right, yeah, that's what it's called. And um, it was done in the slums. Usually, the whole family was working on it. Sometimes they even had a hired hand in there, all living in the same tobacco they were working on. Interestingly enough, the Jacobs, the fellow who was charged with a violation of a law prohibiting that, uh, had two rooms. Very unusual. But the more unusual thing was that he was represented by William Evarts, who was at that time called the Prince of the American Bar, and was one of the men who had defended Andrew Johnson uh, when, he was, when he was impeached. Um, it's kind of curious that this uh, cigar maker could end up with one of the top lawyers in the nation representing him. That wasn't the case in Lochner. Uh, Lochner had just a regular old lawyer representing him who made some serious mistakes, as we can talk about later. So we are going to go to the next part of our story, which he, uh, he takes it to the New York court system. 
uh, he ap appeals his conviction under the bake shop law. Uh, what talk about and that it was case? A and it was a criminal conviction, and I think he was actually incarcerated for it. I'm not sure, but I think that's true. Fine, fifty dollars the second time. Right, twenty five. I think the first. But I think time. he didn't want to pay, so I think that's why he might have had to go to jail because you you, were, you had to go to jail unless you paid the fine. So what can you tell us about his pursuit of it in the New York uh, court system? I think I think Paul is actually better okay. fixed to well, do that. Um, after he was convicted, he actually didn't uh, he didn't uh, defend himself. He uh, didn't plead no contest. He just refused to plea. Um, and he said his attorney said that he refused to plea because the act that he was charged with didn't constitute a crime. So it was just kind of a vague statement of not pleading. I, I think that's because he always intended his, to take it to the appeals court. That would be the only reason that I think that he would do that, except just if he was, if, he, if I'm right, that he was hard-headed. Um, but then it went to the appeal. Um, uh, Appellate Division of the Supreme Court of Illinois, which is, I mean, of, uh, of uh, New York, which is actually the first level of appeal in New York. And um, there, the conviction was upheld by a vote of three to two. And there was the first time that his attorney, William Mackey, raised the issue of liberty of contract. He said he used the terms uh, right to pursue a lawful profession in his brief. Um, so it went three to two, then the appeal to the next level of the New York court. And at that level, um, which is the uh, New York Court of Appeals, at that level, they won by a vote of uh, five to four, no, four to three, I'm sorry. So a majority of the judges in New York decided that this law fell within the police power. So Lochner lost. Lochner lost. And the law won. And the, the law, law was won. upheld. And that's why we ended up in the Supreme Court. Okay, so next mm -hmm. we're going to visit the New York State Court of Appeals courtroom to learn more about that part of, of Joe Lochner's story. Welcome to the New York Court of Appeals courtroom right in here this way <clears throat> and this is the very courtroom in which people against Lochner <clears throat> would have been heard the case was decided in 1904 and the case was on appeal here to this court from a ruling of the appellate division third department and we have the very setup <clears throat> in which the attorneys would have appeared this side would have been the appellant, which is Joseph Lochner's people, would have been sitting here. And the respondent being the, um, in this case, would be the attorney general, would be sitting here. The lawyer for Joseph Lochner would have begun right here, facing the bench, and would have begun with words something like, may it please the court, I'm the attorney for Joseph Lochner, and I am asking the court to reverse his conviction because... My client was denied due process in that he was denied the right to enter into a contract to purchase labor and to set whatever working hours he, my client, had with the employee. So he would have made that argument right here. The judges undoubtedly would have engaged him in questions, following which the attorney for the state, the attorney general, would have presented the state's viewpoint. And the argument would have been whether the police power of the state can, in effect, trump the right of someone to purchase labor and the right of someone to contract freely with labor. And these were the two considerations that were in the balance. So that is the court that Joe Lochner faced and lost his case on appeal. His next stop will be the Supreme Court, and we'll learn about that. But first, let's take more of your calls. Matthew is watching us in Vallejo, California. Hi, Matthew. Hi. Uh, first of all, I want to thank C-SPAN for doing this. It's very fascinating. But I, I had a question that kind of went back to something I think Mr. Barnett said earlier about 
how the unions were pushing for this work hour restriction as a way to kind of suppress the smaller mom and pop bake shops. I went to undergrad at Berkeley and I had a constitutional law professor who was very adamant that it was actually the employers who were very much in favor of this work hour uh, restriction, kind of uh, for the same justification that suppressed these mom and pop bake shops because they were working so much more hours and they just couldn't keep up and compete. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that or whether that was correct or incorrect. Yeah, the unions and the employers who they bargained with um, had the same interest in suppressing competition. So it's really the other half of the same thing I was talking about. And you're right. I think uh, the major, the, the more uh, industrialized, uh, larger bake- bakeries that could afford shift workers would have wanted to suppress competition. And so did the workers who unionized. And they sort of had a, a mutual interest in suppressing the, uh, their competition, their low price competition. Well, they had a, may have had a mutual interest, and they may have acquiesced, but they had absolutely nothing to do with the law. Uh, I, I've read everything I could about the enactment of that law, and I find nothing in there that shows that either unions or large businesses were involved in passing that law. What I found was that the law primarily was passed because of a fortuitous moment. Henry Wiseman was a lucky man. Um, he, it just so happened that he happened upon uh, becoming the head of the Baker's Union at the same time the Gilder Committee was, was uh, doing its, um, its surveys. And it was the power of these individuals. What I, I call those people mainstream reformers. They, they favored good government. They favored ameliorating the problems of poverty in the tenement houses. And they had just enough stroke in the political system in New York at that time that they could, uh, could get a law like this passed. The unions couldn't have done that. They were split into three groups. They had no power. They had no money. They had no ability to influence the legislature, which, by the way, was uh, you mentioned Levi Morton at the beginning or um, or the clip did. Levi Morton wasn't the important personality here. It was Boss Platt. It was Thomas Collier Platt who ran the state with an iron fist and was favorable to business. Um, He wasn't unions weren't going to get anything out of Thomas Collier Platt anyway, but he they might get something. But the uh, mainstream reformers might because they were enough Republican to thwart those Democrats in Tammany Hall in New York City. Next is a call from Steve, who's watching us in Dallas. Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, I love your First Lady series, but you're talking about Pat Nixon last night. Uh, but my question, it doesn't pertain directly to the Supreme Court case, but I was wondering about this uh, Triangle Shortwaist factory fire in New York City in 1900-something. To what degree did that speed up the development of the labor union movement in this country? To what degree did it strengthen it, uh, particularly about working conditions? Uh, did that uh, help to add to the labor union movement uh, growing in America? Uh, Paul Kentz, can you help him with that question? Well, I couldn't answer that question directly because I wouldn't know how how it sped up uh, creation of labor unions, but I think it probably sped up or drew more attention to the problems of tenement house businesses. Next is Will, and Will is watching us in Lincoln, Delaware. Yes, calling from Lincoln, Delaware. Thank you very much, Susan, for taking the call. It's a conceptual question, an open question, that I'd like to direct specifically to Professor Randy Barnett. He's introduced in his early discussion about competition, how the landmark case has impacted on competition. He's talked about education. He's talked about unions and housing. 
Uh, Professor Barnett, would you please expand on other key economic factors that the Lochner versus New York 1905 case impacts, please? Um, I'm not sure I understand what the caller is asking about. Can you be more specific, caller? Yes. About 10 minutes ago, um, Professor Barnett, you were talking about how the unions wanted to, to pursue this landmark case because they were able to restrict competition from mom-and-pop shops, etc. Then you talked about how education would be limited. I'm thinking that you have a reputation as probably one of the foremost libertarian theorists in regards to constitutional law. What other precedents have followed from this key case? Well, okay, I'm... The education piece that I was talking about was how a local law restricted the teaching of German and how the Lochner court struck that law down because it violated the due process clause. Uh, Once the due process clause jurisprudence that the Lochner court had developed to distinguish genuine health and safety laws from pretextual health and safety laws that were really anti-competitive in nature and had no basis in health and safety, which is how what it concluded five to four about this law. um, uh, Once that particular line of cases was eventually reversed in West Coast Hotel and others. That meant that all these laws could be passed and there would be no vetting by the Supreme Court as to whether there was a genuine health and safety rationale for them. The health and safety law rationale would simply be presumed and you couldn't contest it. I I think one of the things, Susan, we need to talk about is that there were two dissenting opinions in the Lochner Mm -hmm. case, not one. There is the famous dissenting opinion by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, but there's the other one by Justice John Harlan. Mm -hmm. And what Harlan's dissent said uh, was that the benefit of the doubt ought to go to the legislators in passing a health and safety law. But it was still permissible to present evidence to rebut the reasonableness of the regulation. And in this case, there actually was a pretty good record uh, that the Supreme Court relied upon to find out that there to find that there was no uh, health and safety measure, although Justice Harlan disagreed. And given the presumption, he said the bake the bake shop law should be upheld. It was Holmes that t- position that was more radical than that. Holmes basically would not have even allowed proof to be introduced into the court. And event- initially, it was the Harlan position that prevailed in the New Deal. And it wasn't until the Warren Court actually that in the Williamson v. Lee optical case that the Holmes approach of his dissent finally became the law when you were just not allowed to contest the rationality of a restriction on your liberty. Well, you're getting us just slightly ahead of ourselves, our caller is, because we have to find out how the case got to the Supreme Court. So would you explain how Joe Lochner was able to get the Supreme Court to take up I'm going to turn to Paul again. Paul told me he just reread his book in advance of this show, so he knows the details of this thing better than I do. The details are spectacular, actually. Um, What happens is Wiseman, by this time, uh, after at at the end, though, let me see what year it was. I think it was about 1894 or so. He um, has a falling out with the bake shop union. And, um, you know, normally I would, when I would read these kinds of materials like the Baker's Journal, I would read, uh, I would read uh, clips, you know, like the tape, uh, um, uh, videotapes and things. This one they sent me was the Baker's Journal itself, this big old book that was falling apart in my hands. And inside the Baker's Journal, I found an addendum to one month's uh, editorial. And what it, what it said was that Lochner had fallen out because he had been skimming money off the top. Weissman. He had, I mean, not, not what, yes, I'm sorry, Wiseman had been skimming money. So he became a baker. He opened two bakers, bakeries, 
and said he was studying law on the side. Um, he, he became active in politics a little bit, in Republican politics. And eventually, um, in 1903, um, he's charged with practicing law without a license. And he admits it. He said he actually wasn't practicing. He was just representing another attorney. So 1903, that's an important date, by the way. Uh, he pops up again in the, in the uh, Lochner case because he gets Mackey, remember that's Lochner's original attorney, to f- he asks him to file an appeal to the United States Supreme Court. The interesting thing is that Mackey files a document entitled, I wrote this down, he says an appeal to the United States, an intention to appeal to the United States Supreme Court and filed a $100 fee. The thing he didn't do is he didn't file a motion for a writ of error. Um, now, for those of you who aren't lawyers out there, or at least weren't uh, early 20th century lawyers, that was the way a, a file got to the Supreme Court. There was an order to send a file to the Supreme Court. So if that had been where we stood, this case never would have happened. That case would have been deep in the dungeons of the New York Courts of Appeal, um, just laying away with his $100 filing fee. What happened, Wiseman took on a, another attorney. His name was Frank Harvey Field. And he wasn't a very famous attorney either, although he had organized or, or argued a court before the Supreme Court. Frank Harvey Field saw the error, and, um, and um, he actually got Justice Peckham to agree to let the writ of error go through and get the case to the Supreme Court. Well, when I was alerted to the fact that Wiseman had been charged with uh, practicing law without a license, I decided, well, when did he get licensed? So I wrote to the uh, Court of Civil Appeals, which is the, uh, the court charged with uh, determining that, and I asked uh, any, any name, spelling name I could find. And what I found, that there was no Henry Wiseman ever licensed to practice law in New York. So and essentially what's happened is, A, the case was very close to never getting to the court, and B, by the way, Wiseman did, uh, he never called himself the attorney. He called himself of counsel, but he did get the right to argue at least part of the, of the case before the Supreme Court. So Weissman turns out to be one of the interesting characters in this entire story because he first starts out organizing the union, uh, is uh, somewhat responsible for the passage of the law, then switches sides and helps get the case to the Supreme Court defending Lochner. So he's, he is an interesting one to watch as we learn about this story. Can you tell us a bit about the Fuller Court, the yes. makeup of the court? Yes. Well, the Fuller Court... Um, has a reputation of being a conservative court. Uh, it is a mixed bag, as all courts are. There's justices put on there by Teddy Roosevelt. There's justices put on there by other other presidents. Um, and uh, in fact, this particular case, it, it had, had upheld economic regulations before the Lochner case. Uh, and so it wasn't clear that the Lochner case, that it had a lock on the outcome. It was a five to four case, but it wasn't clear it was going to come out the way it did. In fact, there are some historians who think um, that, in fact, Justice Peckham's opinion for the majority was originally drafted as a dissent, and then the votes either were not as expected or they changed during the course of deliberations, and it was quickly adju- adapted to be a majority opinion. And it actually, in that sense, um, the thing about dissenting opinions as opposed to majority opinions, dissenting opinions are very clear. People have very favorite dissenting opinions. Almost nobody I know has a favorite majority opinion because majority opinions are written like by committee and they're there to attract votes. If you have a single dissent like a dissenter like Holmes who would be called the great dissenter, he can write these impassioned things. Well, maybe one of the reasons why the Lochner, why I like the Lochner court decision so well when I was a law student, I mean, it was my favorite opinion in, the, in all of constitutional law, 
is because it was written like a dissenting opinion would be written with a very clear, singular argument. Maybe because it was originally part of the dissent and got adjusted to be part of the five to four majority. So the Chief Justice's full name was Melville Fuller. How long had he been on the court and who was he appointed by? Oh, gosh. Uh, he was, he's been on the court since the 1880s. Um, so he's been on the court for quite a while. Now, I can't remember who he was appointed by, um, I'm embarrassed to say. But he definitely is a... Do you remember me? No, but it's like, you um, know, who can remember all of these uh, justices right. and where they came from? Um, but uh, he had been on the court, and he had a very strong... He was a railroad attorney from Chicago. And uh, he um, had a very strong pro-business uh, views. And but I, I just will add that there's a, lot, there's a lot of people that talk about the justices as railroad attorneys. But in fact, because the railroads were responsible for so much of the money in the commerce and litigation, mm -hmm. you almost couldn't be a commercial lawyer without being a railroad attorney. So there's some famous names. Melville Fuller himself, was he famous among chief justices? Um, I think not. You know, I, I actually live in that period of time in history most of my life, actually. Uh, so he's famous to me, but I don't know if he's famous to anybody else. I think not. Yeah. Uh, what we heard the name Oliver Wendell Holmes, who certainly would be well known by the general public. Uh, John Marshall Harlan. Uh, who were any of the other names of the justices serving that people would know about who distinguished themselves? On well, the court? It, it may be that, uh, again, I'm a little bit of a um, not the best person to ask, but David Brewer might have. He was the nephew of uh, uh, Stephen Field and uh, of a connected to a family that had uh, uh, pretty strong ties in in America and pretty strong uh, power in America. But the rest, I would say, no, it was uh, Brewer, um, Henry Billings Brown and uh, Joseph McKenna. And then um, it was uh, a day in white. None of these people, I think, were particularly famous lawyers. It was Holmes, Harlan, and, Harlan and Fuller, probably. But Rufus Peckham authored the, the opinion that has uh, gone on to be debated in all these years since. Can either of you tell us more about his story, who he was? Uh, well, he was, he's a New Yorker. Um, he um, uh, was appointed. he had been on the court for about 10 years at this time. I can't remember who he was appointed by either. Um, generally con conservative views. He had always voted primarily voted against any kind of labor legislation or any kind of restrictions on business. Um, interestingly enough, the way I'm describing these people, it sounds like uh, Lochner's attorneys have a good case, but they don't really. I actually think that uh, they had a hard case going in because most of the liberty of contract cases that were developed over the period before Lochner versus New York were state court opinions. There were only two court opinions that were coming in that were, were, um, were federal court opinions. One was Holden versus Hardy, which upheld an eight-hour day for mining and manufacturing on a health, a health and safety provisions. And the other was, um, the other was Atkin versus Kansas, which upheld another law, and it was either an eight-hour day or a 10-hour day for public employees, which is a whole different uh, bailiwick because public employees are uh, part of the contract in a way. The, the government's part of the contract. So uh, both of those cases were upheld. So all of the cases in the Supreme, that were in the Supreme Court um, at the time this case came up, upheld restrictions on ours. And, and it's somewhat of a myth to say that even going forward from the Lochner case, that the Supreme Court struck down a lot of economic regulations. Uh, it struck down some, but upheld far, far more than it struck down. And I want to go back to where we said at the beginning of the show, because some of your viewers might not actually have been watching us at the beginning, and that is that the Bake Shop Act was a very elaborate health and safety law that the Lochner Court itself upheld as a legitimate regulation of health and safety to protect both the public, uh, especially to protect the public, but other people as well, including the bakers. It upheld that as constitutional. That's the, that's the evil, terrible, awful, wicked Lochner court did that. Just the one provision 
was struck down. We're going to learn more about Rufus Peckham, the justice who wrote the majority opinion, in our next piece of video returning to the New York legislature. Now, Justice Peckham, who wrote the majority for the Supreme Court of the United States decision uh, in Lochner's favor, served on this court before this court heard the case. Justice Peckham was a judge of this court from 1887 to 1895. So when Judge Rufus Peckham was on this court, he, along with the others, would have come out the door wearing the robe, and when he began, he would have sat in that seat, that's the seat of the junior judge, and as he took on seniority and others came on, he would have moved around. He was a political advisor of President Grover Cleveland, and when there was a vacancy in the United States Supreme Court, uh, Cleveland obviously felt that his friend, his confidant, and New York Court of Appeals judge Rufus Peckham Jr. would have been a good candidate for the United States Supreme Court, but he would have been right in this courtroom here, and we can have a pretty good idea of how he would have voted had he been on this court when the Lochner case was decided here, because we know how he voted when he carried the majority in the United States Supreme Court in favor of Lochner. So that's a bit more about Rufus Peckham. Now, here's the singular question that the Supreme Court was asked to visit in the uh, Lochner case. It is simply this. Did the New York Bake Shop Act violate the liberty protected by due process of the 14th Amendment? So is that that's obviously a big question. Yes. Uh, so uh, what kind of arguments were made? Right. Well, so one thing to understand here is that we have a very modern view of what rights are and how rights work, a post-New Deal world uh, view. So when we talk, when the, case, when the court talked about liberty of contract as being part of the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause, we have a tendency to think that if you recognize a right of liberty of contract, then that should be inconsistent and that should trump all health and safety laws, all economic regulations. But that's not the way any constitutional rights, including freedom of speech, was considered before the New Deal. All laws had to be reasonable, which meant they had to be not irrational and not arbitrary. And you could challenge any law as irrational and arbitrary under this standard approach. And so that was the question before the court. Under the Due Process Clause, is, was this law irrational and arbitrary? And these were, not, these, these were actually technical terms. And let me just say what irrational is. Irrational is when you pick a means and the means are not all that closely related to the end that you say is why you're doing it, we might have reason to doubt that that's really while you're doing it. So if you say, I want to go to the grocery store, my end is to go to the grocery store, but you end up at the dry cleaners, well, then maybe your end really wasn't to go to the grocery store. So if you say your end is public health, but you pass a law that doesn't have that close a connection to public health, we may suspect, in the words of the court, other motives were responsible for it. That's an irrational law. An arbitrary law is a law that treats similar people uh, differently. So I would, you would regulate um, histor historians one way and law professors another way, even though there's no real reason to distinguish what the kind of job that Paul does from the kind of job that I do. A law that treated us differently that way would be considered arbitrary. Both of these were the way due process cases were dealt with. And identifying a liberty of contract only meant that the law would have to be not irrational, not arbitrary in order to survive scrutiny. And that's what the court was deciding in this case. In our earlier cases, uh, Paul Kens, we learned that the court 
uh, was uh, often hearing cases over multiple days and that arguments would go for a long time. What was the actual process of making an argument before the Supreme Court in 1905? Had it standardized itself at that I, point? I don't think it standardized itself, but it wasn't long as long as pre-20th century. Um, they would go days pre-20th century with important cases. I also don't know that this case was as complicated as some of those other cases, like the slaughterhouse cases that you covered in, like, um, uh, like Dred Scott. So wild and wonderful on Twitter, uh, thinking about the justices who are on the court and the attorneys making their appeals to them, writes, is it fair to assume that none of these justices rose from the poverty of the labor class? Mm-hmm. So they all had a predisposition toward what? That's the premise of that question. Yeah, well, I think, they, I think that's true of lawyers in general, uh, especially in that era. Um, and um, I, I don't think any rose from poverty. Um, Holmes didn't. He was um, at least the ones that are famous that we know of. Holmes was uh, the son of an uh, important uh, doctor in Boston and part of a, a Boston elite, sometimes called the Boston Brahmins. That explains his opinions, which are sometimes hard to read because he writes more like a poet than a lawyer um, and more like a lawyer than somebody who writes clearly. And um, Harlan was the son of a slaveholder. He ran for governor in Kentucky. He's a really, really interesting man because uh, his his opinions kind of swing one way or another. And uh, people have trouble getting a grip on John Harlan, I think. Uh, Peckham, as we've seen, was... uh, the son of a judge. Um, so, yeah, I say that's true. I'd like to make a comment about uh, what Randy said, though. Uh, he keeps on re- saying that uh, these are all legitimate health laws. Well, that's part of the problem here. Uh, part of the problem was defining what the police power is. And um, liberty of contract, by the way, and another thing we ought to tell readers is that liberty of contract is not found in the Constitution. It's an extra constitutional uh, right. It's created by the courts, and it's not really created until after the slaughterhouse cases, although there's some, you can make arguments that it's in the spirit of the Constitution, it's not there. Um, So what we end up with is a kind of a triumvirate of uh, questions that we are asked in Lochner versus New York. One is, does this violate due process? That's the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. That's kind of the hook to the Constitution. The other is, what right violates this, uh, the due process clause, and that's the contract clause which is, as I said, not in the Constitution and a relatively new development. And the third thing is the police power of the states. What's the police power? And by saying that it's just a health law, that wasn't necessarily what everybody thought. People thought the police power extended to the general welfare. And well, that, that, that's true, know. but I do want to mention about liberty of contract. The right to make and enforce contracts was a right that was in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, uh, passed by the Congress that eventually passed the 14th Amendment, because they were concerned that the Democrats had made such an issue of the Civil Rights Act of 1866 that the minute they came back, they would repeal the act, which they promised to do. And also, the act had been vetoed by President Johnson as beyond the powers of Congress to pass under the 13th Amendment. And there were some Republicans who shared Johnson's concern that maybe they didn't have the power to protect the right to make and enforce contracts and to hold property and to testify and to do other things. And so they passed the 14th Amendment to make sure that the rights that were mentioned in the Civil Rights Act of 1866 would be protected by the courts. And one of those rights that was specifically mentioned in that was the right to make and enforce contracts. So it's not true that the court made up this right uh, to make and enforce contracts in 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 the 20th century. 
Now, when we talk about Henry Weissman, who you told us was not a lawyer, never got his law license, and he, but he did get to argue part of the case before the courts. Peter Irons, in his book about the Constitution, is really uh, very much enamored of Weissman's brief to the court. And we pulled one of the quotes that he has in his book. This is Henry Weissman making his case to the Supreme Court, and he compares the Baker's to the American housewife. Let's listen to what he said. Then there is the American housewife. Here is the real artist in biscuits, cake, and bread, not to mention the American pie. The housewife cannot bound her hours of labor. She must toil on sometimes far into the night. It seems never to have occurred to these ungallant legislators to include within the purview of the statute these most important of all artists in this most indispensable of trades, appealing to motherhood and apple pie to the court. Well, he wasn't the first one. To, to, he, he was the strongest statement. But uh, two of the judges on the uh, New York Courts of Appeals made that same kind of comment. Uh, Judge O'Brien, I think, was the first. And what he said was... Um, the good housewives of New York will be surprised to learn that baking is an unhealthy business. Um, I actually think that the Attorney General of New York had the better case in law, but he had a little bit of an image problem with respect to his case, and that was just what Henry Weiss Is that Julius on. Meyer? Julius Meyer, yes. I mean, what that, what that quote goes to is the, is the alleged arbitrariness of the law, which would limit bakers but would not limit other employees who at that time were also engaged in occupations that we today would think were very unhealthy. In fact, much of what people did was unhealthy, which is part of the reason why the unions were formed in the first place and why you have health and safety measures. Uh, but why just single out the bakers and why not all the others? That was considered to be arbitrary. The miners, the, the case that had already been upheld with respect to the miners, could be distinguished because mining, as we know, is really an unusually dangerous occupation. In fact, I'm old enough, and you're probably old enough to remember, when there were mining disasters in the United States on a pretty frequent basis, like airline crashes were happening on a frequent basis. And so they could say, like, if you're down in a mine shaft for longer than a certain number of hours, you present a health and safety risk to yourself and to your fellow miners. The same could not be said, the court concluded, or there was insubstantial evidence to show. The same could be said of bakers, as opposed to many, many, many other trades who were not being subjected to a maximum hours law. So that would also make the law arbitrary under the traditional standard of how the due process of law, the due process of law requires that laws not be irrational and not be arbitrary. How long after the case was argued did it take for the court to re return its opinion? Oh, I have no idea how long it... Um, it didn't take as long in those, in those days as it takes now. Yeah, and There's no question months. about that. Mm -hmm. It could be, yeah, be good very quickly. And we, we, we talked earlier about how Justice Peckham originally started out as a dissent. And in... in perhaps, perhaps. It's speculated. And it's in conference where right. the justices begin to argue their opinions. Mm -hmm. And he ultimately was chosen uh, to write the majority opinion. Here's a little bit of what, on this 5-4 decision on the Lochner case that Justice Peckham wrote in his majority opinion. There is no reasonable ground for interfering with the liberty of person or the right of free contract by determining the hours of labor in the occupation of a baker. There is no contention that bakers as a class are not equal in intelligence and capacity to men in other trades or manual occupations, or that they are not able to assert their rights and care for themselves without the protecting arm of the state interfering with their independence of judgment and of action. What's he appealing to there? He's appealing to the standard of arbitrariness, that there's no particular reason to single out the bakers as opposed to the other occupations that he also lists in his opinion. 
and that was the historic standard of due process. In the state courts prior to the federal courts, and then once the due process clause is included in the 14th Amendment, in the federal courts as applied to state laws as well. That's what he's appealing to. Um, whereas he could distinguish minors for the reasons I said before. There is a reason to single out minors and people in an unusually dangerous occupation. Here's a little bit of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes' dissent. He wrote, a constitution is not intended to embody a particular economic theory, whether of paternalism and the organic relation of the citizen to the state or of laissez-faire. It is made for people of fundamentally differing views, and the accident of our finding certain opinions natural and familiar or novel and even shocking ought not to conclude our judgment upon the question whether statutes embodying them conflict with the Constitution of the United States. What's he saying? Well, he's actually attacking the whole notion of liberty of contract. He believes there's liberty of contract is not a part of the Constitution, uh, that in fact what it is is a representation of laissez-faire economics. And that he, what he believes is the majority is actually taking laissez-faire economic theory and applying it as constitutional law. Which, which I think he was just wrong about. The majority was taking the due process clause, the traditional due process clause standard, and applying it here and suspecting something else was going on besides a health and safety law. I, I want to agree with Paul what he said a minute ago, which is very important, and that is that there was, at that point, uh, the nature of the police power, the scope of the police power was being contested. And so this is really what the debate ought to be about. It isn't about whether there's liberty of contract, because in general, you're free to enter into contracts, you're free, we're all free to enter into contracts as long as we're not harming another person. The question is, what is the scope of the police power that the state has to regulate us or to prohibit us from doing certain things? That is what the argument really was about. Did it include more than the health and safety of the public. And at that point, the court was saying that's as far uh, as it goes. But the other thing I would want to say about Justice Holmes' statement here is that later on when he gets to his free speech cases, he takes an entirely different approach. And he says that the theory, there is a theory of free speech in the Constitution, and that is that ideas need to prevail in the marketplace of ideas. They need to survive in the marketplace. He says at least that's the theory of our Constitution. So he was perfectly capable of finding theories in the Constitution um, uh, when he cared to. Let's go next to Roberto, watching us here in Washington, D.C. Hi, Roberto. Good evening, Susan. Yes, and good evening to your distinguished panel. Um, to answer your, your previous question from a few minutes ago, the Lochner case was argued over two days on February 23rd and 24th in 1905 and decided le less than two months later on April 17th. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. And I just have a few questions. One of them requires some historical background and addresses uh, the main point of liberty of contract. And that is the question of where did this come from? Well, what, um, if you'll just bear with me a little bit. After the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment, de jure slavery was outlawed. However, of course, many people in the South tried their best to keep de facto slavery intact. And while, of course, many uh, freed slaves who were known as freedmen uh, wanted you know, their own land, um, that wasn't unfortunately happening too well. But what there was happening was there was a, a government agency called the, the Freedmen's Bureau. They went down there to the South to help the freedmen you know, uh, make a living. And what happened was they realized that, the, you know, unfortunately they weren't able to get, get, them, get them land. But what was happening now is that the freedmen were, were going to work on, on, on the plantations all over again. And obviously the, the former slave owners preferred that they would do it for free. And obviously they couldn't do that because, you know, the Freedmen's Bureau was trying to institute, quote-unquote, free labor. So what they came up with was this, con this concept of having people, uh, have, have the slave owners sign a contract whereby they would guarantee uh, the freedmen you know, wages. 
Now, these, these contracts weren't exactly uh, you, you call free in the sense that most of them were one-year contracts where the freedmen could not leave the, the former plantation. A lot of them had provisions whereby if there was a, a bad crop that year, their wages would get docked, etc. But at least there was something that the, the freedmen could hang their hats on and say, hey, if I hit my end of the bargain, then you, you owe me some money. So, Roberto, so the, so, with apologies, that we, our time is so short. So bring this into a question for us. My, my question is, that's why they instituted that, that provision, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which became the 14th Amendment, which, which is the Fourth Amendment. So my question was, how did the concept of a liberty contract, which was originally uh, uh, formulated to, as a shield to protect employees from, from employers taking advantage of them, how did that get flipped on its head to allowing employers to then use it as a sword against employees, because that, that's what basically happened in Lochner. I went from, you know, and so that was, that's my first question. Sure. I'm going to have to stop you there. I, I apologize. We have so many people in line. Thanks for your call and your interesting background. Well, first of all, I would just say there's two sides to a contract. There are employers and our employees, and there's two parties. I was a con- I'm a contracts professor as well as a constitutional law professor, and I can tell you there's two parties, and it depends on which side is trying to get out of the contract, which side the court is going to have to deal with or maybe side with. But I want to mention... He brings up a very important point. In the South, there were all kinds of ways in which the Southerners were trying to reimpose the subjugation, the subordination of blacks, and try to get around the 13th Amendment. One of the ways Alabama did it was by criminalizing breach of contract, so that if, a, if somebody would sign a long-term contract, they gave them $15 deposit, a $15 fee to deposit in advance, and then they quit their job, they would actually accuse them of fraud and prosecute them for crimes and put them in jail and subject them to hard labor for quitting their jobs. And it was a way of keeping blacks under the control of what their former slave masters were. That law was also struck down by the Lochner era court on, as a violation of the 13th Amendment. You know who dissented in that case and would have upheld that law? Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. He thought that law was perfectly constitutional, even though the Lochner court, the Lochner era court, thought it violated the 13th Amendment. I have only about 15 minutes, and we have so much to discuss about the long tail of this case. Uh, So let me ask you to compress 35 years of history, if you would. We said at the outset that this initiated the so-called Lochner era on the Supreme Court. What does that term refer to? What happened at the court during that time? Well, actually, the term's a little bit of a misnomer because Lochner becomes the symbol of this era, but it's not substantive due process. It's really the heart of the battle in this era. The era involves a battle over the Commerce Clause, really and a battle over Franklin Delano Roosevelt's attempts to deal with the Depression through government action. Um, and the, the thwarting of those, um, of those attempts by the Supreme Court up until 1937. So what happens in 1937 is first the story of Roosevelt trying to pack the court. And actually, Randy may be better to tell you about that. I will have uh, Randy tell us about it, but let's listen to Franklin Roosevelt in 1937 complaining about the Supreme Court in a fireside chat. Let's hear it now. The court, in addition to the proper use of its judicial functions, has improperly set itself up as a third house of the Congress, a super legislature, as one of the justices has called it, reading into the Constitution words and implications which are not there and which were never intended to be there. We have, therefore, reached the point as a nation where we must take action to save the Constitution from the court and the court from itself. 
And what was that action? Well, he tried to pack the court. Um, he tried to uh, pass a statute or th in which the number of justices would be increased, um, and he could appoint justices until the older justices retired. And in fact, got a very ill reception from Democrats. At this point, Democrats had huge majorities in both the House and the Senate. Um, and, and he could have gotten a constitutional amendment to legitimate lots of what the New Deal had said. He had the votes for that. But he chose not to do that. He chose to do this instead. And there were de leading Democrat chair, uh, chairs of committees that were not very friendly to this court packing scheme. Um, but that's what he tried to do. So our viewer earlier said that the, the so-called Lochner era came to an end in the court itself with a decision made in 1937, same year, which was West Coast Hotel v. Parrish. Tell us what happened then. Well, in West Coast versus, uh, Hotel versus Paris, the Supreme Court um, actually said two things about the Lochner case. One, um, uh, one thing it said was that the Constitution speaks of liberty, not of liberty of contra contract. So it, it rejects the notion of liberty of contract. Uh, the second thing it does is it kind of it talks a little bit about the kinds of burdens on society. And it actually kind of uh, hints at rejecting the whole notion of laissez-faire economics in the sense that it says that actually substandard wages um, actually turn, in, turn out to be a subsidy on the people in favor of businesses. So it kind of turns the whole idea of Lochner around. Uh, it, the one thing it doesn't do, though, and I'm sure Randy's going to agree with this, is it doesn't change, it gets rid of the notion of substantive due process. People don't talk about it in that term, those terms anymore, but substantive due process, in fact, hasn't died. We still have a court that tends to be activist, the kind of court that Roosevelt was. Actually, it's very important, I think, at this point, we have with a few minutes left to say that the term substantive due process was never used by the court during the so-called Lochner era. That was simply a term that was made up by progressives to criticize what the court was doing because they held by protecting a substantive right, they were going beyond the procedural nature of the due process clause. So substantive due process was only embraced by the Supreme Court, I think, as late as the 60s and 70s. Prior to that, they never even used the term because it was considered to be a, a contradiction in terms and it was a criticism. It was never a doctrine of the court. I also want to agree um, with what Paul said about the fact that the so-called Lochner era, first of all, the Lochner era, as I told you, really didn't get, Lochner didn't get any traction until Teddy Roosevelt was running as a progressive for president and he started making the Bake Shop Act a, a, an issue in the campaign. But secondly, uh, Paul is right, there were, oh, but there were two issues that were in front of the court at this time. One were due process clause cases about the irrationality and arbitrariness of local laws and eventually of federal laws. And the other was the enumerated powers of Congress under the Commerce Power. Lochner is a due process case. And if when we were arguing the Affordable Care Act challenge for two years that I was, as you know, quite in involved with, people kept accusing us of, of favoring Lochner or bringing back the Lochner era. But we were doing a Commerce Clause case. We were not doing a Due Process Clause case. So the case of Lochner v. New York had nothing whatsoever to do with the challenge to the Affordable Care Act. And that's a confusion that maybe this program can rectify in the future. It's a confusion that's not a confusion because in both of those instances, the court followed a pattern of, of restricting the ability of government to get involved in economic regulation. Well, so in that sense, the they're both the same. But the confusion is to label it Lochner. Yes. That somehow Lochner, as a case had anything whatsoever to do with the Commerce Clause and the limits on federal power. And even recently, as one of our viewers on Twitter, Fan Ye, says, uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts refers to the Lochner case 16 times in his dissent on the uh, same-sex marriage case. What is your view? Let's listen to some of what the Chief Justice had to say 
uh, about uh, the, the uh, same-sex marriage decision and Lochner. Ultimately, only one precedent supports the majority's interpretation of the Due Process Clause, Lochner versus New York. In that case, decided in 1905, the Court struck down a state law setting maximum hours for bakery employees. The Court did so based on its own conception of liberty, in particular its view that the Constitution protects, quote, a general right of an individual to be free in his own person. In the years after Lochner, the Court struck down nearly 200 other similar laws that the Court saw as a, quote, interference with the rights of the individual. Now, the Lochner era is now regarded as one of the most unprincipled periods in the Court's history. The problem with the Court's approach was not that the particular liberties the Court enshrined were undesirable, but that such an unrestrained enterprise had no basis in the Constitution. So what should we understand about what the Chief Justice I think, I, I hope your viewers noticed that what Chief Justice Roberts said sounds exactly the same as what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said. They are articulating the exact same position, and many conservatives, or at least, but are fewer and fewer of them, simply imported the Roosevelt New Deal jurisprudence, and they made that part of their conservative politics. So, in fact, it was the progressive restraint criticism of Lochner that got, gets imported into modern political conservatives' arguments, and it's the liberals on the court, it's the left on the court, that in, in, in as early as the 1940s start abandoning all these calls for restraint, and they start assuming what was called an activist role, in which they would affirmatively protect liberties in ways that previous to that progressives had criticized. So we've done a flip here, and now it's conservatives who are unreconstructed Roosevelt New Deal jurisprudence, and it's liberals who are, we, when I call them, reconstructed Roosevelt New Deal jurisprudence, but both left and right in this respect are all operating in a post-New Deal mode. Well, here's an example of this, Paul Kenz. We have uh, several major citations of the Lochner case in uh, follow-on cases at the court. In 1908, Mueller v. Oregon, 1923, Adkins v. Children's Hospital of D.C., 1965, and this is in a very important case, Griswold v. Connecticut, which is the right to privacy. 1973 in Roe v. Wade, and then again in 1992 in one of the Planned Parenthood cases uh, versus Casey, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Right. Uh, but in the last cases, they were it was liberals and they were citing yeah. the dissent. So here's an example of this shifting politics. Well, everything flipped with um, as the court flipped. I mean, I actually think that the uh, the liberals being in favor of judicial activism, which uh, you know, Richard Nixon ran on the on the idea that he's going to appoint judges that are going to follow the Constitution. Right. It was liberals who were the activists. I actually think that's the anomaly. I think, by and large, conservatives have been the activists over time. And as Randy said, I think every, uh, the conservative side of the political docket and the liberal side of the political docket, that I think your term was a post-New Deal mentality, I think that's turning around a little bit now. Um, I hope it is. Yeah, I think, well, I... That's I, what I'm, I'm trying to see happen. I don't know whether I hope it is or not, but, <laughs> but I, I think it is turning around a little bit now so that you have, uh, you have at the same time in, um, in Obergefell, you have uh, just Chief Justice Roberts complaining about the liberals uh, being Lochnerizing, you have Justice Ginsburg talking in it on uh, National Federation of Business versus Sebelius about about the conservatives Lochnerizing. Now they're talking about the two different elements of Lochner. One's talking about judicial activism, that would be Roberts, and one's talking about the idea of the court interjecting itself into decisions about economic policy, and that would be Ginsburg. Um, uh, that's uh, where I think we're going now with this. So let, me, I, let me take some calls. So sure. You don't mind. Charles in Spring Lake, New Jersey. Thanks for watching. You're on the air. 
Yes, uh, I don't really have too much to add, except my uh, Uncle Joe, that was my father called him. It was my father's, uh, my father's uncle, uh, Joe Lochner. And uh, I don't know too much about, about the case itself, but uh, Uncle Joe, of course, ran that bakery. And uh, from what my father told me, he used to employ a lot of uh, German immigrants. So they would come over and, and, uh, and they would have a place to work. Um, obviously, so, he, uh, Charles, in your family, is is uh, Joe Lochner well known for his place in history? Oh yes, yes. Two, of, two. Of my sister is an attorney, and uh, and my uh, my nephew is also an attorney, and my niece is an attorney right there in Washington, where you guys are. And uh, yeah, we're all we're all kind of like does, legal. Does the does the family say anything about the relationship of Uncle Joe with the employee that was uh, trying to work more hours than he could under the statute? Because we got some sense earlier. Uh, that they were actually pretty close to each other. And I, I think that there's some indication this was actually a setup case uh, between the two of them to try to challenge the law. Do you, is there anything in your family history about that? I don't know too much except that, that there was a sense that uh, this was like a, almost like a, it was like a clan, you know. People would, would, would come to work and they would have a place to work. So there was a, you know, he fulfilled a need for people. Coming okay. over from Germany. Well, thanks. I hope we told you a little bit more tonight about your uh, your relative, uh, Joe Lochner, who is the person who gave his name to this case and brought it to the Supreme Court. Let me take a call next from uh, Cloyd, who is watching us in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Are you Hi there? there. Can you hear me? Sure can. Okay. My, my uh, question comes from a, more of a historical background. I have an uh, education in history. I'm looking to go to law school next year, and this is just fascinating to watch this, and I really appreciate it. But it's uh, it's the premise that Mr. or Professor Ken stated on the unions and the employers of the big bakeries having a definite interest, but not being involved in the outcome of legislation to to, to create this law that caused Lochner versus New York. I, I guess my concern is, from a historical analysis perspective, how can you or should you be weary of saying just because there wasn't any public record, anything you could find in your studies or your analysis, your research, uh, no public record of them being involved, that there couldn't have been something behind the scenes, especially if it would benefit them to hurt or, or, or stymie this other private small business, um, either in corruption or bribery at the, at the legislative or even the judicial level? Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a real good question. Uh, but I do have more than just not finding anything. I mean, the two of the th two of the things I have is that the unions just weren't powerful enough to get this passed, so they weren't involved. And the uh, the second thing is that um, the bakeries uh, were completely different. The powerful bakeries were the cracker industry bakeries, so they had no interest whatsoever in this particular bill. Um, so that's um, so I, I I think that's a good point of view, but I I still feel pretty but strongly. The bake shop I'm union correct. had no interest in the maximum hours. Not the not the uh, union. They're, not the bakeries that were um, actually cracker industries. No, but the bake shop union. That the bake shop union didn't represent those people. They represented just the uh, the uh, bakeries, the bread baking industry. But, but did the bake shop union have? Oh yes, the bread. The bake shop union did absolutely, but it didn't have any power. But it they, it, it was a union uh, yes. initiative. It was a union initiative. Okay. Uh, this is going to be our last call. Ken from Daly City, California. Hi, Ken. Hi. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. 
there seemed to be a a growing national mood at that time for regulation, uh, labor rights, health and safety standards. And I was originally going to ask how much did this precede uh, the publishing of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, and I found out that was published a year later. But right at that particular time, many unions uh, got their foothold right at that time. I mean, it was a very, very um, uh, uh, important part of our history, just those few years. And I wonder how much this affected the courts at the time. I mean, were they, they must have been aware of all this. Thank you. Yeah, they were. And I also want to go back to a point I made earlier. At this time, unions were all white or generally white. There were some black unions, but they were specialized. They were small and they were all male. And so although the progressives were very pro-union, um, that also meant that de facto or for maybe on purpose, um, they were also pro-white male and to the disadvantage of blacks who were resentful of some of the unions, the more powerful unions that would not let them in and they had to organize themselves. So you always have to keep that in mind that you know, we think of unions differently than unions were there and the progressives like unions and the court was actually, aware, to answer your question, the court was aware of union agitation, which is why the court in Lochner refers to other motives. Lacking a health and safety reason that's adequate, unlike the rest of the bill, we might suspect other motives are responsible for the passage of it. As the, like, for example, this was actually pro-union as opposed to management uh, legislation. And the courts said the legislature is not supposed to put their self on the side of one or the other, which is what Paul was saying was going on in terms of debating the scope of the police power. Our guest said that there's beginning to be a revisiting of Lochner, especially among libertarians. Our final clip is Senator Rand Paul on the Senate floor in 2013 talking about Lochner. So when you get to the Lochner case, the Lochner case is in 1905. The majority rules five to four that the right to make a contract is part of your due process. Someone can't deprive you of determining how long your working hours are without due process. So President Obama's a big opponent to this, but I would ask him, among the other things I'm asking him today, to rethink the Lochner case. The case in Lochner is whether a majority rule, a state legislature, can take away your due process, your due process to contract. Can they take away your life and liberty without due process? And the court rules no. I think it's a wonderful decision. It expands the 14th Amendment and says to the people that you have unenumerated rights. So, gentlemen, as we close, we, we told folks that the court in 1937 ended the Lochner era. But you write in your book, clearly, Lochner is not dead. We've just seen examples of this with the Chief Justice and now with Rand Paul. What should people know about what Lochner's importance today in the body politic? Well, I think Rand Paul, I think the two of those together show uh, what the importance is. Rand Paul is talking about the idea of, the, of judicial activism. Um, and I think that, oh, well, actually, it's Roberts that's talking about the idea of judicial activism. And um, Rand Paul is talking about a certain kind of view of liberty that I don't think everybody shares. Um, and that, that notion that you entered into this contract of completely free, at arm's length, by the way, from the contract professor, um, just doesn't hold in a lot of people's minds. And it didn't hold in the progressive era mentality, uh, the era of progressive um, philosophy either. And you get the last word. Well, right naturally, now. I'm very sympathetic with what Senator Rand says. Else, else, uh, other, uh, in that speech, which was part of his filibuster, he also favorably cites my book, Restoring the Lost Constitution, The Presumption of Liberty. And the argument here is that our liberty should be presumed to be valid. 
and government should only restrict them if they have a good reason. And if they have a good reason, they ought to be able to present evidence in support of that reason in court, which was something they would have been able to do on behalf of most of the health shop, of the Bake Shop Act, but they were unable to do, according to five justices, with respect to the maximum hours law. That's what judging should require of legislatures. And so ends our program on Lochner v. New York. This is the fourth in a series of 12. We'll be at this until the middle of December. What we've done, if you want to learn more about these cases, if you're learning like we are and you're not a lawyer, well, we have a book available for you uh, that we're selling at cost. It is written by Tony Morrow, 12 cases that we've selected for the series. And if you go to our website, cspan.org slash landmark cases, you can find how to order it. And we've got people ready to ship it out to you as quickly as possible so you can follow along with the next several cases that we have in our series. As we close tonight, let me say thank you to Randy Barnett and to Paul Kenz for helping us understand the 1905 case of Lochner versus New York. Gentlemen, thank you very much. For thank being you very here. much. It was great thanks to be on Paul. Yes, thanks. It was a pleasure. pleasure.